Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, today covering the table of duties included in Luther's small catechism. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as we get going here today, we're picking up now with section three of the catechism. Again, at least that's the language that our most recent edition of Luther's Small Catechism with Explanation published by our publishing house, Concordia Publishing House, in 2017 uses. It used section one to talk about what we commonly call, all the way back to really Luther, the six chief parts of the catechism. And we've covered that in all of its entirety from the Ten Commandments to the Creed, and then to the Lord's Prayer, to the sacraments there with baptism, confession, absolution, and the Lord's Supper. Then we covered last week section two, which is the daily prayers. And you set up for us really well how that is connected to what we see with the six chief parts. You know, it's not just something thrown in there as, oh yeah, here's something else good that we can put in in the small catechism and so forth but it's actually a really important part that is included in Luther's small catechism that we would know how to live our Christian life in prayer and devotion. Excellent episode that you had for us on that. And I think you'll probably make the same point. I certainly will make the point, at least myself, that then this section three here with the table of duties is much the same. It's not just something that's thrown in there. And especially as we'll have a lot of scripture citations and so forth today, it's not just something that Luther throws in there, but something that is really important, I think, for our catechism. And especially as we begin this then, I want to give this little introduction, if you will, this introduction that is written right there under the table of duties in Luther's small catechism. It says this, certain passages of scripture for various holy orders and positions admonishing them about their duties and responsibilities. And right as I throw that over to you, we talk about holy orders here. Well, obviously, when we think about the time of the Reformation and so forth, that would have been the monastic orders. And yet Martin Luther, and what he gives us here, gives us a, a quite different understanding of holy orders. And so I definitely believe that this is very intentionally included in Luther's small catechism and very vital for our Christian faith and life every bit as much as the six chief parts and flow forth from the six chief parts and then what we also saw in the daily prayer. So go ahead and take us away here, Pastor Bestel, with introducing us to the table of duties 
and what we're talking about here with these various holy orders and so forth. Yeah, you know, Sean, uh, I think in last week's show, if I remember correctly, I talked about how much I enjoyed teaching the section on daily prayers as one of my favorite sections of the small catechism to teach. And then this week, as I was preparing for this episode, I thought to myself, you know what? I really enjoy teaching the section on table of duties, partly for the same reason as what you're just talking about, that here you start to see how the theology, the sort of, if you will, the academic textbook theology in theory or in classroom teaching, six chief parts, now plays into daily life. Right? Uh, how does daily life and doctrine go hand in hand? And that's really what you're seeing in daily prayers and in uh, table of duties. Sections two and three really bring into daily life the reality of what is set up for us in the six chief parts, that the six chief parts teach the doctrine, they ground us in Christ Jesus, they drive us to the forgiveness of sins and the strengthening of faith that happens in the divine service, that we might go out and live our normal daily life and live that normal daily life faithfully in Christ. And so this is certainly not a standalone section, not only to the whole catechism, but there's a beautiful tie right in with the daily prayers, that in the daily prayers you talk about or you learn about the real-life application of faith in God, and then in this section on the table of duties, you learn what it means to have fervent love toward one another. Think of that post-communion prayer at the end of the divine service that asks that in the sacrament that we've just received, we be strengthened with faith in you, meaning faith in God, and fervent love toward one another. Well, here you see it in sections two and three. Faith and love go hand in hand all throughout the scriptures. This reality of love formed by faith. Faith comes first, and from that flows true Christian love toward our neighbor. But notice I just said that they go hand in hand throughout the scriptures, and that sort of leads to a second point. This entire section is nothing other than an organized listing of Bible verses. There's no commentary. You know, Luther doesn't comment on any of it. He just lists a bunch of Bible verses. Now, I don't know why this is, why he chooses to do it this way. Maybe he just felt like he was running out of time. But I like to think that it's because daily life is not to follow the commands and exhortations of men, but of God. And so thus, though, every other portion of the catechism does use man's word to explain the doctrine of God's word, and certainly nothing wrong with good, faithful teaching in explaining it, here God's word stands alone. And whether it's intended or not to be this way, the fact that God's word stands alone in teaching us about daily life, it almost implies and teaches us to think about this reality. It almost implies that in daily life, God's word must have its way with us, right? I don't just use God's word in whatever way I want it to fit, but it's just God's word. And I can trust his good word, his holy law, his precious gospel. I can live by the Ten Commandments, even as Luther talks about in the large catechism in the preface, that he says, you know, the one who knows the Ten Commandments knows everything for daily life for both spiritual and, uh, and temporal matters, right? That you can be a judge of both spiritual matters and temporal matters if you know God's holy will. Well, here you've got, in the table of duties, you've got God's holy will being applied to individual vocations in life. And so it's a, such a helpful section to be able to show the average person in the pew that, yes, this is just how we are to live. This is why it's referred to as the table of our Christian duty. Uh, where does it have its way with us in daily life? In our understanding of vocation, 
right? Here's that great word vocation that comes up so often in Lutheran theology. And yet sometimes I think the average Lutheran doesn't know where we get the word from, this idea of this calling that God puts us in, this daily life calling and says, you're going to be in this role by my authority and you are going to serve your neighbor, this vocatio, this call. And Lutherans love to talk about vocation, and yet they might almost sheepishly say, well, I don't really see it in the catechism. Well, it's right here, right here in the table of duties. Here's our daily life vocations called by God to do his will in faith of our salvation in Christ and for our neighbor's benefit, thus faith in you, fervent love toward one another. And thus this section includes this slew of vocations to let us see various aspects of daily life. Now, one more thought before we get into the actual details of this is that the subtle teaching of the whole section doesn't really end there. But also notice to the dear listener out there that every one of these vocations, you can see these as a couplet of vocations. They're not just randomly chosen to stand by themselves, but rather for one Christian invocation, there's always an interacting Christian invocation, right? You know, you don't have a vocation to serve yourself. You have a vocation to serve your neighbor, which by default means there's going to be a neighbor on the other side who has a vocation to serve you. And so those two vocations are to see each other in daily life and how we ought to interact with one another. And so make sure to always study this table of duties in vocational relationship. And if you do that, then you'll ensure that you have a good understanding of what each partner owes the other and thus how to interpret the godliness of how vocations are being carried out rightly, or sadly, the ungodliness of how they're carried out wrongly. But if we are always seeing in our vocations the reality that in this we have a relationship grounded in the mutual responsibility to God, boy, it makes those vocations much more peaceful to carry out because we see God's will being done in it, even if I and the person next to me are both sinners, yet because it's God's will and because we desire to live according to that calling and that vocation, therefore there can be good Christian love toward one another because it's lived out with faith in God. I like what you set up there in terms of viewing this as our vocational responsibilities. And as I threw the question over to you, especially with talking about the holy orders and so forth, the first couplet we'll get here is maybe what we would expect at the time of the Reformation is viewing the holy orders, right? It'll be to bishops, pastors, and preachers, and then what hearers owe their preachers. But this will definitely flow into these other vocational couplets that you've talked about there as well. But let's go ahead and take here the first couplet here, to bishops, pastors, and preachers. And here, just for the sake of time, I'll just simply cite and give just a brief summary, very brief summary of these passages that are cited here and then let you teach on those. So this is to bishops, pastors, and preachers. We have 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 4, talking about an overseer must be above reproach. And then we also have cited 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, talking about that the overseer must not be a recent convert. And then also citing Titus chapter 1, verse 9, that he must hold firmly the trustworthy message and encourage others in sound doctrine. Then we go to the other part of this couplet here, this vocational couplet that you talked about with what hearers owe their pastors. In the first couple, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, and Galatians 6, verses 6 through 7 there, we'll talk about how those who work in the Word should receive their living from the Word, how we should pay our pastors in essence. 
1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18 talks about that they are worthy of honor and don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Uh, very important during COVID, by the way. I, I use this all the time for mass. I don't know if it specifically applies, but I do it anyway. First uh, Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13, that we would uh, respect those who work hard among us uh, and regard their work and love. And then uh, Hebrews 13, 17, that we obey our leaders and submit to their authority. So go ahead and take us away here. What are our vocational expectations in this first couplet here of bishops, pastors, and preachers, and then what hearers owe their pastors? Sure. So I think, you know, starting with the pastor, and I like that Luther starts here not because the pastors are more important or a higher class citizen, right? Sometimes you have that argument that somehow there's a different class between pastor and people. That's not true at all. But I like that he starts with the pastors because he then, in a sense, comforts the hearer to say that the pastors owe you a certain duty toward God, right? That the people are not there to serve the pastor, but the people are there to receive from the pastor Christ's promises and Christ's gifts and God's holy word. And so he starts with the pastors and he says, look, this is what you owe your hearer. And this is how you ought work faithfully and diligently. And so as you sort of summarize, there are a couple things that really jump out real quickly in First Timothy and in Titus, which notice that right in this section, where is he going to? But he's going to the pastoral epistles, right? These are the places that we get these citations are from the pastoral epistles. My congregation and I, uh, incidentally, have taken the last couple of years to study the pastoral epistles, and I say the last couple of years because we got interrupted by COVID for so long, but uh, it's been an enjoyable study, partly because even though at first people might say, oh, these are just letters to pastors, and yet what comfort it brings the congregation to hear that the pastors are not their own employer, they're not there just to do whatever they want, they're there because they're accountable to God for the sake of the people. In a sense, and I don't, uh, uh, you know, this is a little bit of a gross overgeneralization. In a sense, they're not responsible to the people as much as they're responsible to God for the people. And therefore, what comfort to hear these passages, 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 4, and again, 1 Timothy 3, 6, and then also Titus, saying, you have to be faithful. You have to have the ability to carry yourself rightly. You have to have the ability to teach. You have to be temperate in mind and in conduct. Uh, it's interesting that one of the passages cited is, must not be a recent convert. You know, every now and then we see that happen where someone becomes a Lutheran and within two, three years they're a pastor. I don't know that that's the healthiest thing, to be honest, for the life of the church. How do we know that that guy isn't still wrestling through some of the things that he might have shed from, uh, let's say, a Baptist background or Roman Catholic uh, upbringing, whatever it is? But it's sort of trendy in the church nowadays to have men who have, in a sense, experienced the other side of the fence or who fell into a great sin and then can talk based on their experience. And they're almost followed as some guy who supposedly, quote unquote, gets me, right? And you go, well, I don't know that that's really the scriptural mark of a faithful pastor is to be able to say, I can get you. And yet that's sort of what is often looked for. And yet right in the small catechism, no, it is not to your benefit. The Holy Spirit says, no, it is not to your benefit that he be a recent convert or recently pulled out of sin, if you will. But rather, even if it's bland, even if it's more boring to have a guy who's tried and true, then you can have assurance as a congregation that he's not all of a sudden going to get out of control. 
uh, right doctrine, of course, is an important part here, and this is in the letter to Titus. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The congregation is owed by its pastor a willingness on the pastor's part to do the dirty work of refuting false doctrine. Nobody likes someone who says no, and yet Jesus says no all the time, right? But people say, oh, I, you know, we just want a pastor who's going to love everyone and who's just going to make everyone feel welcome. But there are times where it is best for the congregation's life to refute bad doctrine. I can't remember if I brought it up on this particular show or not way back at the beginning of our conversations together, but you hear about Paul speaking about from Titus here, this importance of sound doctrine. And the word there is the word from which we get the word hygiene. And, you know, good hygiene is really important. Nobody likes bad hygiene. Nobody likes stinky breath. Nobody likes body odor, you know, bad body odor. You need good hygiene. And so you need a pastor who is willing to, in a sense, do the dirty work. I mean, who wants the embarrassing position or the awkward position of sometimes having to point out to someone, hey, you know, you, you smell, you, you know, everybody can smell your bad breath, bad body. Someone needs to do that for the reputation of the individual who's maybe offending. Uh, same thing with sin, right? Someone needs to do that difficult work. And that's what hearers are promised. And that's what pastors are getting themselves into when they want to be a pastor, is to say someone's got to do the difficult, dirty work of upholding sound doctrine and encouraging the life of the congregation to rejoice in that sound doctrine, even if sometimes it's awkward or not so fun, having to keep sinners focused on the narrow way. Now, in response then, what do the hearers owe their pastors? Interestingly, the number of passages here, five different passages, the first three are all on, if you will, monetary, material possessions and making sure that the pastor is well cared for. Um, I certainly understand. I agree with you in, in a time of uh, COVID and a time of need. It's easy for people to maybe pull back in their offerings and say, I've got to just make sure I take care of my family first. And they forget that part of taking care of their family is making sure that the word of God is proclaimed purely. Uh, and so it is right to include these passages of saying, no, you you're, you're really do need to make sure that the pastor is taken care of. More specifically, I would say that the pastor's family and household is taken care of because then the pastor doesn't have to go off and work, you know, some part-time job to be able to care for his family. And then when he's trying to care for his family, then, you know, a member of the congregation says, oh, pastor, come quick because my loved one is dying. And the pastor says, well, I'll come as quickly as I can after I get off of my shift from my part-time job. Well, that's not helpful to the congregation. So it is in the congregation's best interest to care for the pastor materially. Yet, to be perfectly honest, here's one, you know, here's a situation where I sort of wish that the catechism was that these came in a different order, and we're not necessarily going in order of how they show up in the scriptures, because the third passage listed, 1 Timothy, comes later in the scriptural record than 1 Thessalonians does, doesn't it? So we're not necessarily going just from Matthew through Revelation here. But I really wish that the last two came first, because the last two talk about the hearer owing respect to the office of the holy ministry and simply obeying the word of God, right? That's what's going to make life for the pastor easiest, is if everyone just rejoices in God's word and obeys their leaders and submits to them because they don't get to be leaders by their own right or on their own whim, but rather they are leaders over the people's souls as one who is accountable to God for those souls. So 
I really try to emphasize in my teaching, hey, if you do four and five, if you focus on the fourth and fifth passages, then the first, second, and third passage will likely follow, right? The one who is revered, the one who is respected, the one who people see is doing God's work, they're going to want to make sure he's he and his family know that they are loved and being cared for. At the same time, I've told my congregation before, you can't get rid of me by paying me nothing. Go ahead and try it. The call remains. Whether I get paid for it or not, I still have a duty and responsibility. And so if the congregation has to suffer because I can't get to their sick ones and their dying ones, or I can't spend time preparing Bible studies adequately or sermons adequately, then the congregation will suffer because of that. But I'm still going to hold on to that responsibility to God and take that very seriously. And I'm going to do that work that a pastor is to do. So it's to the congregation's great detriment if the hearers don't carry out what they owe their pastor materially. But that really starts with the respect and the obedience owed to God's word more than just a man. Absolutely. And I kind of jokingly was talking about muzzling an ox in terms of the masks and so forth. But also, I like what you highlighted there even more positively so that there's been a lot of struggles for congregations and just in terms of caring for pastors that he can continue caring, but also in terms of muzzling the ox. We just think about how pastors have been restricted from being able to bring the sacrament to our dear members who have had it their whole lives that are in nursing homes and unable to receive their pastors. Not that they wanted it. You know, the government has stepped in here as well. And again, this is to their detriment. So those sorts of issues, I think, transition us into this next couplet as well and give us things to think about but certainly a lot to talk about here. So let me go ahead and get this couplet here and its citations for us. So this is of civil government, and it just has one citation, Romans 13. And I am looking forward to this just because off air, you and I have talked about Romans 13 and how much it has been talked about here, especially the last year plus so during COVID and so forth. And I like how several times on this show, you've always reminded us of its proper position, especially in terms of the commandments and so forth. So I look forward to your teaching on that. But then with of citizens, it also cites Matthew 22, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and then Romans 13 again, to be necessary to submit to the authorities. And then it also cites 1 Timothy 2, to pray for and to offer intercession and thanksgiving for kings and all those in authority and so forth. So go ahead and take us away on this teaching here. And we, uh, with about five minutes before break here, may need to break this up and come back after break here as well. Yeah, this probably deserves quite a bit of a good, solid attention. We could probably do an entire show just on this again, couldn't we? The Table of Duties really has so much to unpack in it that you really could take a lot of time to go through it. But I think in general overview in these two, three minutes before hitting the break, this section just helps us understand the proper relationship between the two. Remember, we said, look at all of these things in terms of the couplets, government and citizens. This helps us then analyze in a difficult situation, like the situation we've been in for the last 18 months, to what extent have we been using Romans 13 correctly? And what possibly have we been using incorrectly in appealing to Romans 13? How have we perhaps been appealing to it with sort of a tunnel vision during the pandemic, and just this really narrow focus that is forgetting to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and is forgetting that there's more to Romans 13 than simply saying, everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For example, and maybe just leave with this thought before the break, for the last 18 months, all we have heard 
is that Romans 13 says that we are to be subject to the governing authorities, which puts all of the emphasis on what the citizens owe the government. And yet notice in the table of duties that Romans 13, 1 to 4 tells us here is what the government owes you as a citizen, right? And where have we heard that for 18 months? Everyone's just been told, oh, Romans 13, you owe the government, just do whatever the government tells you to do. And yet Luther uses Romans 13 by stating, wait a second, the government owes you something. Well, what does the government owe you? This is an important point to make that it has to owe you something specifically because of the fact that it has been established by God. And God doesn't put things over you just for you to serve them, but he also puts things over you for your good and for your benefit and to keep everyone focused on God's will. And so if it's been established by God, it must be about God's will, not just its own will. And that's something that I honestly, I, I think we have totally forgotten in the last 18 months as a church, that everyone has just said, yes, yes, there's a government. Caesar wasn't always fair either. And yet Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. We'll get to that uh, on the other side of the break. But yes, that's true. That's all true. And yet it's not in context. And we have to keep these things in clear context, dig into the scriptures, and notice how, as Luther includes this in the table of duties, notice how those four verses are constantly pointing back to the fact that government is accountable to God to do God's will, not just the government's will. The government doesn't get to define what is God's will. The fourth commandment doesn't get to define commandments one, two, and three. Right? The fourth commandment is always in service to commandments one, two, and three. And when you've got the government coming in saying, you Christians aren't allowed to worship for a certain number of weeks or months. Now, wait a minute here. Since when does fourth commandment have ownership over the third commandment? Right? So we simply have not taken opportunity these last 18 months to call any of this into question, perhaps because we think safety first, and we think, you know what, just for the time being, let's just get through and be safe, and then we'll analyze later. No time like the present to really analyze this and say, wait a minute here, are we actually using Romans 13 correctly or have we been appealing to it too narrowly? And so maybe we can take some time on the other side of the break to look at this in more detail. Absolutely. Great thoughts there. Hate to kind of break it up, but maybe good to give us a few minutes to kind of think about those things that you bring up there for us. And then we'll certainly have more to talk about on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestall. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our series, The Catechized Life. Today, talking about the table of duties in Luther's small catechism. And we've had set up here for us by Pastor Bestel, our catechist, 
that the table of duties come to us in vocational couplets with those expectations that God has for these vocations as we live our Christian faith and life. And we were talking just before the break about one that's obviously at this day and age, a very popular topic in terms of civil government, and then also vocational expectations of citizens in relation to that civil government. And uh, Pastor Bessel, you gave us some things to think about, especially in how these things relate to, in terms of the commandments that the fourth serves the first three. And in that sense, before we even get there, I, I want you to finish your thoughts on the civil government and citizens here. But as we take a look ahead, some of the couplets coming up, we see husbands and wives, parents and children and so forth. I don't know the reason why it's ordered this way. I don't know if anyone specifically does. I don't know if it's written anywhere. But if I were writing the table of duties, I would have moved husbands and wives, parents and children before civil government and parents, just because as we've talked about on this show, in terms of the fourth commandment, that's where we actually begin as Christians is in that household there. And then government is an extension of that. But obviously, these things are all related to one another, and what we have is what we have. And so go ahead and finish your thoughts here for us on uh, the vocational couplet and the vocational expectations that Scripture gives to us of government and citizens here, Pastor Vestal. I appreciate, Sean, that you bring up husband and wife now, because it sort of lets me, just for the sake of time, kill two birds with one stone, that you're absolutely right that uh, Luther says in the large catechism, in the fourth commandment, that anyone who has authority over us, that authority is an extension of the authority that comes from father and mother, right? And so one of the things that we've been struggling with in these last 18 months is to what extent does the government have authority and at what point does that authority stop or what point does that authority encroach upon father and mother or encroach upon the church? And we have to keep in mind that the three estates are equal estates just like you have in the American government, that three equal branches of government, so also in you know, the way that God in his good order has established creation, these three estates are equals. And therefore, we ought not allow the government, though it is rightly an equal estate given by God, and we should cherish it for the way that God has given it. Yet, in a sense, when we start to notice that it is going beyond what God has given it to do, it is not breaking the fourth commandment to all of a sudden call it to repentance and say, no, thus far shall you come and no farther. And that's certainly true when it comes to the government impeding on the life of the church and saying you're not allowed to worship your God right now. Or it's certainly true when it comes to the government basically telling parents how they have to raise their children. We saw just recently in Virginia that one of the candidates out there for governor basically said that the parents have no right telling the schools what to teach their children. That is just an amazing statement to show how far removed our society is from the proper understanding of the three estates. So the authority that the government has over us, it does have over us, but it has over us as those that in a sense have been hired or elected by father and mother, that extension of the fourth commandment, right? The only people named in the fourth commandment are father and mother. Government isn't named in the fourth commandment. And yet by extension, because we have the great words of scripture that do promise us this blessing from God, government is to be a blessing from God. And it is a blessing from God when it governs according to God's will. And that's the point of discussion that we have to have. 
is what the government is doing at any given point in time, is it doing it according to its own will or is it doing it according to God's will? That doesn't mean that it has to appeal to the scriptures all the time. It simply in its jurisdiction cannot contradict the scriptures. And that's something that perhaps we've been a little bit too passive throughout these 18 months in calling into question. Notice the words in Romans 13 here as given in the table of duties and how it subtly but very definitively reminds us that the government is tied to God's will, not its own will. So phrases like, quote, been established by God. Another phrase, quote, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. And thus, do what is right, and he, Caesar, will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. Notice all of that has to be according to God's definition. Who gets to define what is right? Who gets to define what is good? Only God does, right? That The same word there, that same good that we hear in the perfection of Eden, same word we hear in Genesis 1, same word that was broken by the fall, and yet that is what the government is to aspire to, is what is God's holy will for creation, for society, for as much as government has influence on, and it's again a gross overgeneralization to say it this way, but you can almost say the government has authority until it reaches the doorstep of the house and until it reaches the doorstep of God's house. And within the home and within the sanctuary, it has no authority. And yet it is God's equal servant for everything that goes on in public life. And yet it is his servant to do what is good. And so, for example, in this COVID situation, we certainly applaud the government for its efforts in general to combat this horrible disease. And yet, where its combats in general we might support, there can be specifics that we say, wait a minute, that's an overreach of what government is called by God to do. So when the government is called to keep us in focus of God's will, then it is to punish evil. It is not to punish simply consequences of the fall, but to punish evil. So for example, wearing a mask versus not wearing a mask. In order for one to tell a Christian that he is unloving and that the loving thing to do would be to wear a mask, he must show the Christian where he is doing evil by breathing normally according to the consequences of the fall. Right? That's really the situation we're in, is we're being told that if you don't wear a mask, then you are evil because you don't care about your neighbor. That's not true. That's not true at all, especially as the data and statistics don't prove positive seem to indicate that masks are doing a whole lot of good right now. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but certainly not the type of thing where one can with authority say you are evil if you do not wear a mask. Now, there certainly can be within society's rules the idea of saying, if you want to frequent this particular store, then maybe the store owner has rights over his own store. And we might get into that when we get into the vocational duty regarding employers, right? That employers are to be honored. And that's true not only by the employees, but also by the customers. And store owners ought to be honored. And so if they have that rule in their store, then maybe Christians can follow that if they want to frequent that store. But that's different than government mandating it over all of society and saying that if you live in the fallen world and that if there are effects of the fallen world that happen, despite our rational and reasonable efforts at loving one another, that that somehow is evil. Uh, we've just gotten a little bit off course with that. Having said that, people do have a duty toward the government. 
right? And now we've got this list, uh, Matthew 22, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 3, it goes on, 1 Peter 2. Notice, though, that it starts with Matthew 22. Render unto Caesar, or give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. And that word and there, rather than what used to be often memorized in youth as give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. That would often pit the two against each other, which is not the case. Caesar works for God, right? And so when we render unto Caesar that which is properly Caesar's, we are thereby giving glory to God. We are there giving God what is due him, namely the glory due his name. So we are to give to Caesar what Caesar rightfully is owed. Uh, For example, taxes, uh, obedience for the sake of conscience, right? That as we obey Caesar, we can know that we are obeying God if we know that Caesar is carrying out God's will. And yet the conscience says, you know what? When Caesar is funding murder in the form of abortion or murder in the form of euthanasia, I can't with a clear conscience follow that. Does that mean that I am sinning against Caesar, right? This is, again, is the wrestling that we're in in this COVID situation, is that you have Christians who genuinely are saying, I Unless someone can instruct me on where my conscience is wrong, I don't think the only way to love my neighbor is to get a vaccine. Uh, I've said it to my congregation throughout this, get your vaccine, don't get your vaccine. Make whatever individual freedom choice that your conscience is bound to, right? So one Christian individually can appeal to a religious exemption and be of the same faith as one who says, no, I don't believe I need to deal with the issues of religious exemption, specifically because the scripture calls us to work according to a clear conscience as we know the word of God. And so our duty to Caesar is bound by a clear conscience toward God and what Caesar is asking us to do. At the same time, we ought pray for our leaders. With what goal in mind? that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Notice that quote in there from 1 Timothy 2. Uh, Not just with the goal that we show that we have allegiance to Caesar, but rather with the goal of godliness. If Caesar is asking us to do something that is not godly, then one of the best defenses against that is to pray that God would thwart the efforts of those who would do something in opposition to God's holy will. And that God would thwart it, not me, right? It's not a call to arms, but it's a, it's a call to depend upon God and to be faithful to God, even if there are going to be temporary consequences because the government has gotten off track and is now punishing good rather than punishing evil. But we have to be very careful, again, about this idea of what has been pressed upon us and saying, if you really love your neighbor, right, we're going to add an 11th commandment, uh, thou shalt get a vaccine. Uh, okay in Christian freedom, not okay in mandates. And so when those mandates start to come down by the hand of government, this is where Christians should really look at the table of duties and say, do I really owe this to government? Or is this one of those situations in which I have a burdened conscience because I don't think government can rightly declare that my conscience should be bound to it in this particular situation. Therefore, in all godliness and holiness, we go forward, being subject, being obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. You see that there in the uh, citation of Titus chapter 3. But again, that word good has an objective definition, not coming solely from the government, but government as responsible to God. God defines what is good. The government is to enforce that and to reward that and to punish evil. And therefore, a Christian's conscience is to be determined by the word of God 
and where the Christian sees by the word of God that the government is doing its due role, then even if the Christian feels inconvenienced, he's still to carry out in good order what the government has told him to carry out. But where the Christian conscience can point to the word of God and say, no, I'm sorry, this is against God's word, then a mandate must be refuted and, and must be stood up against if that's where the Christian is at in terms of how he reads God's word. So submit to every authority. There's, there's another one. Submit to every authority, quote, sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, again, what happens when government conflates those two? For example, Christians worshiping in catacombs are those examples of disobeying government and therefore doing what is wrong? Or are those examples of Christian fidelity and doing what is right even though the government said that it was wrong? Okay, Christians not recanting the faith. They too were referred to as disobeying government. This is why they are now martyrs. Government said, you're the bad guy. And yet there are times where we have to say, no, actually, you have perverted what is God's good order and you have gone beyond your authority. And where we have to say that, then we have to say that regardless of what the temporal consequences might be. So we have to be very careful in interpreting what is right in God's eyes versus what is right not only in Caesar's eyes, but we have to be careful in interpreting it according to our own eyes, right? Sometimes just as we want to be God over God, sometimes we also want to be Caesar over Caesar, and that's not our place. God has given us Caesar for our benefit, for good order, and God will tear down from their thrones all earthly governments that do not do his bidding, and he will see his church safely through. Now, last point I would make on this before getting into the others is, who is our Caesar? And this is something that I wish throughout these 18 months we've been a little bit clearer about too. And by the way, pastors do have an opportunity and a responsibility and a duty to actually speak to this as a right delineation of law and gospel and leading their people through, just as I quoted or just as I cited in the first half of the hour that Luther says in the large catechism, whoever knows the Ten Commandments can be judge over not only spiritual matters, but over temporal matters. A pastor, as one who knows the catechism, knows the Ten Commandments, can help his people rightly understand the material, political, socioeconomical matters out there to the best of his ability, sort of at the 30,000-foot overview ethical level. Even if he's not an expert in politics, it's not his job to get into the politics, to say from the pulpit, vote for this guy, not for that guy. Not the pastor's job. But the pastor can say, folks, make sure that you are thinking about this, not as simply saying, oh, I always vote for R or I always vote for D, but how do we as Christians positively influence society? One of the ways that we can do that is make sure that society is thinking rightly about who is Caesar. Keep in mind, the Constitution is Caesar, not the office holder, whether it be your local governor or whether it be the president of the United States. They are office holders in the same way that a pastor is an office holder. You do not obey a pastor whatever he says in whatever he says just for the sake of obeying the pastor. You obey the pastor who has taken a vow to the scripture and the confessions when he can show you from the scripture and the confessions that that which he says is right. In the same way, the office holders of the government are duty bound to Caesar, and Caesar is the Constitution. And therefore, every Christian, just as Paul exercises his civil right and appeals to his, his own citizenship, every Christian 
not only has the privilege, but then has the vocational duty to say where, according to the Constitution, am I bound to this? Not just according to a governor's mandate or to the whims of one branch simply giving a presidential executive order, right? So Christians should always keep in mind that in this land, Caesar is the Constitution. It is not the office holder who is on the news every night. And that will really help us with a very level head better understand what is being ruled as being good or as being evil, and does that constitution align with or contradict God's will? So many excellent things in there. Again, as I often say on the show, can do a whole episode on this, maybe several episodes. Maybe I'll just assign that to you as homework, Pastor Best. will begin working that up on why Concord matters for our relationship to the civil government as citizens. I do think that these are confessional matters. They are scriptural matters. Great teaching on that. I also want to thank you for uh, citing the Titus 3 and 1 Peter 2. I realized I skipped over that. I did not mean to omit those. Uh, They're very important citations. So thank you for bringing those in. I just simply failed to turn a page. But uh, moving forward here then, as we are short on time, as always seems to be, I will go ahead and take the next couple of couplets here and then just let you teach on them. So this is the next couplet is then to husbands and wives. The citations under the husbands is 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Colossians 3, verse 19. Then to wives, Ephesians 5, verse 22, and 1 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6. Then the next couplet would be parents and children. And the citation under parents is Ephesians 6, verse 4. And to children, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. I'll just let you go ahead and give us your teaching on those without my summary of those citations, as you'll certainly reference them there. Sure. We've already briefly mentioned husband and wife, and I think this couplet is one that we meditate upon often, and so we can go through rather quickly. Uh, Husbands, be considerate, treat wives with respect, and as fellow heirs, right? That's what the verse there in 1 Peter says. Love them, right? Colossians chapter 3. I am a little bit surprised, to be perfectly honest, that Ephesians 5 is not mentioned in here for husbands because that's about as strongly worded as can be. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a pretty high bar. And therefore, you know, maybe it's not practical enough to include in the table of duties because a husband might say, well, how, what, you know, what does that look like in daily life? All right, fair enough. But I still think that we could certainly reference that. Uh, Wives, you have a very high bar as well when the table of duties says, submit to your husband. That's difficult. That's very difficult because I, as a husband, I know by experience that husbands are sinners too, and husbands often fail in their vocational duty toward wife, and yet wife is to still submit. Eve did not, and Eve was the one tempted, and yet Adam takes the blame, and so we go all the way back to that mess in the Garden of Eden. And so what a high bar for both husband and wife, and yet what a beautifully high bar to be set, that husband and wife ought look at each other and say, this, this spouse has been given to me by God. This spouse is one in which I share one flesh union, and therefore there's no better gift, material gift given me this side of heaven than this spouse through which God has made great promises to me. But vocationally speaking, God has also made great promises to my spouse through me. And that needs to be my effort and my goal in upholding my table of duties is to say, I am not going to let my spouse down 
because I don't want my spouse to think that God has lied when God has promised that I'm going to be a blessing to my spouse. And so though we fail miserably at it often, and husbands and wives probably spend far more time than they would want to having to repent to one another and having to forgive one another. Nevertheless, it creates a beautiful relationship or it maintains that beautiful relationship in forgiveness there. It maintains that as that which sets its hope on the one eternal marriage of Christ and his church. Flowing from that, of course, parents and children. Again, for the sake of time, very simple. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Now, be careful with that because that would make it sound like the children's emotions get to determine their upbringing. Right. And that's sort of an interesting thought because our society has tried that for a number of years now with horrible, horrible consequences. Right. Our society has tried to say to the children, oh, what do you want? Let's just do whatever little Billy wants. And it's just a disaster. Uh, So we don't want to say that just because parents are told, do not exasperate your children, that that means that the child gets to determine how the child's going to be raised but rather keep reading, quote, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Again, just as we want to hold government to that high standard of saying, you need to do what is good according to God's sight, same thing needs to be said in our own homes. By word, parents, if you are just raising your children as if they're your own property, almost like one step up from having a pet, uh, my goodness, that's not at all what God has called you to do. These are God's dear creation they're God's dear baptized children. You have a responsibility to God to raise them according to God's instruction and not your own instruction. I would much rather have a father who rejoices that he has trained his child to say the Ten Commandments than a father who rejoices that he's trained his toddler to go get a beer out of the fridge for him so that he can stay in his lazy boy. We want God-fearing parents to raise God-fearing children. Children then, in response, obedience. Because in your parents, the Lord is at work. Through your parents, God is raising you up in good teaching and in good discipline. All right. Let's push forward and take the next couplet then, which is of workers of all kinds, citing Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, and then to employers and supervisors, citing Ephesians 6, verse 9. Getting a lot of Ephesians citations here, and especially Ephesians 6, uh, I think scripture is kind of pretty specific here for us, Pastor Bestel, in uh, that these are vocational expectations that we have. Scripture's not silent on these things. So go ahead and talk about this here. Yeah, anyone who wants to say that Scripture is irrelevant to daily life has obviously never read Ephesians chapter 6. <laughs> but Ephesians 6 is great here. Uh, workers, you owe your employer the sincere effort as if your employer were Christ, right? That you're going to work for every dollar that you are paid that if you are supposed to be on the job for eight hours a day, you're not going to work for seven, or you're not going to find a way to make it look like you're working hard, or you're not going to, you know, if you're supposed to work from nine to five, you're not going to sort of slide in at 10 after nine and get out of there at 445. That's not faithful. Put in every hour and every minute of every hour that you are called to do that your worker may be pleased with your effort. Uh, Sincere effort, always according to, again, notice this quote in here, quote, doing the will of God from your heart, right? So if your employer asks you to do something that is noticeably contrary to God's will, can't do it, right? So if your employer asks you to lie, to uh, steal, to fudge the numbers, to cheat customers, don't do it. There are plenty of other positions out there There are plenty of other ways 
that God can provide daily bread, if you're so worried about your paycheck that you're willing to have sort of situational ethics, that's not faithful. And so if your employer in this sort of ends justifies the means type of society that we're in, if your employer is asking you to do something contrary to God's word, don't do it. If your employer is asking you to work extra on Sundays so that you have to miss the divine service, don't do it. Find a different job that doesn't require you to work on Sundays. That might be a long-term solution and might not have a very easy short-term solution, but that should be the long-term goal. If your employer wants you to work so much that you have no family time, don't do it, right? Daily bread is going to be provided by God. The career is not what defines you, but rather, even if you uh, don't have a paycheck to bring home, you should still do work out of allegiance to God and still saying, I don't care what I bring home. I am in this vocation, and therefore I am going to work hard at it because it is according to God's will. Uh, If I have to change vocations, fine, because I need a better paycheck or whatever. Okay, that's understandable. But while you're in that vocation, you do the vocation to the best of your ability as long as it aligns with God's will. Can you imagine how well employers would think of us if we worked our tails off because we thought, in a sense, we were working for Christ. And that, in a sense, is what you are doing, right? Carrying out your vocation and confessing that you belong to Christ and therefore that you're going to love your neighbor. Uh, You know, another one that I would not do, it's become very popular in our society today to see office mates as family, right? It's very popular among tech companies for whatever reason. A lot of these HR departments now want to talk about our businesses as family. And by that, they almost get you to spend more time with the business than with your family. Don't do it. But work hard with sincerity, knowing that you are working for and confessing Christ before men. Employers, very simple citation here. Don't threaten your employees. Right. Then does that bring up anything with vaccine mandates, anybody? Right. I mean, here, here we've got all these vaccine mandates in which employers are doing the dirty work right now. And the government almost, in a sense, doesn't have to. And the employers are the ones saying, if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. That's not what the table of duties call us for, unless, unless not having the vaccine is a sin, right? So we've got, we've got to properly apply law and gospel here. If not having a vaccine is a sin, then employers can threaten that they are going to fire evil employees. But unless it's a sin then you can't threaten that way and still say that you are doing God's will. So treat them with equality as fellow servants of God, whether they are Christian or not children of God, it doesn't really matter. That employee of yours is still a servant of God, right? All of creation still serves the one true God, whether it realizes it or not. And so employers ought to treat their employees with that respect. All right. And then just for the sake of time, always running short of time on this show, we'll just take the last three together here. So the one to youth, citing 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, to widows, citing 1 Timothy 5, 5 through 6, and then to everyone, citing Romans 13 again, and then 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Go ahead and summarize these last three for us here and take us out for today, Pastor Vestal. Yeah, I'd say uh, of these last three that really I think what you can do is see it as a final couplet. And then that last one, that third one, is really an overview for everyone, right? It's even titled To Everyone. And so that covers the entire table of duties. And yet there's that last couplet there, youth and widows. And really, I think that you could say that's youth and elderly. And this is a great concluding couplet because it reminds us 
that the church should never fall into the trap of thinking demographically, right? Who cares if the person in the pew next to you is 40 years older than you or 40 years younger than you? And if, and you don't know them all that well, there's still common Christian love and common Christian courtesy and perhaps even common Christian interest, right? Uh, maybe you share an interest in something, maybe you don't, but the one thing that binds you together is the Christian faith in God and fervent love toward one another. So, you know, it, the demographics come together. And so that's what this last one is really all about. Youth care for the elderly, learn from them. They have an entire life of living with faith in God and fervent love toward one another from which you can benefit. Widows, elderly, faith in God is highlighted here in the citation, but what does that imply toward the youth? That the elderly will not live in self-pity or in self-pleasure, but with joy and the opportunity to take interest in and be an example for the next generation. Think of the negative or positive example the elderly set for youth. It's a negative example. If you are constantly traveling and you're missing every other Sunday or you're gone for months at a time and the youth never see you, even if they look up to you from a distance, they never see you because you're always gone. But what a positive example that no matter how much a physical struggle, depending on word and sacrament faithfully, being there every Sunday, maybe kneeling at the altar of God when you know you might not be able to get back up, but partaking of the holy things of God so faithfully. What a great example for the youth in the congregation, right? What a wonderful example. And just go on with faith in God, fervent love toward one another. And that's where you get that last phrase, that last duty to everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself and pray for everyone. And that's a wonderful way to live daily life. Again, faith in God, fervent love toward one another. That is unfortunately all the time we have for today. Thank you, Pastor Bestel, for serving as our catechist for this and giving us at least a basic catechesis lesson here on the table of duties, how we live our Christian faith and life, as you summarize so well, love of God and love of neighbor. Absolutely beautiful teaching there for us. Thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.